Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee and welcome to episode 49 of the Benzo Free Podcast. Can I just say something at today's opening? I feel great. Well, okay. (laughs) Actually, that's what the script says. (laughs) Yes, I wrote that in there. And, And when I wrote this, I felt exactly that way. Unfortunately, this morning I had a slight downturn in mood. I got triggered by something that made me angry and, um, and a little hopeless and stuff, just very minor. Um, so it's kind of weird to read a script that talks about how I felt when I wrote it and then how it is when I actually read it. So I apologize for the, um, disparity there within the text, but overall I am feeling a lot better than I had. I mentioned before the trip that I hoped I would return re-energized and I did. I actually returned from the trip a bit down, but I rallied and now things are looking better. And the trigger that I had this morning, it will fade and probably by noon, I'm going to be feeling just fine. And trust me, the last thing I'm trying to do here is gloat and say that I'm feeling great and you're not because I would never do that. You know that. But I always try and share what I'm going through. And the good stuff is just as important to share with you as the bad. I know I share a lot of my struggles on this podcast and the road trip series had a few of those, but I want to make sure I balance things out and share my successes just as much, if not even more, than the rest of the stuff. Yes, part of my upturn in mood is symptom-driven. I've hit a bit of a window and it's helping out. I'm still sleeping pretty well since the trip, and that helps everything. (laughs) But most of all, it's been a positive shift in attitude, and in my experience, that really helps. And some of that change has come from you, your emails, and especially your gratitudes lately that have really lifted my spirits. Sharing with me what you are grateful for helped me to focus on some of the things I'm grateful for too. Which which reminds me, the deadline isn't until Saturday, December 21st, and I'd love to get more gratitudes in. So please, send them in. I could really use them. It's really going to make this episode next week shine. Just send anything you are grateful for this holiday season, even if all you can think of is one thing. Send it in via our feedback form or email. I really want to hear them. Thank you in advance for doing that. I appreciate it. Anyway, back to the subject at hand. I feel good. Well, even despite that minor hiccup this morning, I feel good. Tis the season to be jolly and all that incorporates. Now, I realize that this season can be very difficult for many, and that honestly breaks my heart. Because whether you see it as a sacred religious ceremony or just a joyful celebration of the season, I think there is something joyful for everyone this time of the year. But unfortunately, 
many people have a hard time finding that joy. And that is especially true if you are alone. And even more true if you are in the middle of benzo withdrawal. Still, sometimes we have to work at enjoying something. And, and I think that is doubly true for the holiday season. If we don't stop, slow down a bit, and relish in the music, the lights, the decorations, and yes, even the shopping for those of you diehard shoppers out there, we just might miss it. I missed it a lot during my withdrawal. I, I think I've shared that with you, that there were years when I just couldn't find the joy in the season. And I know, trust me, I know that some of you are in that state right now. But I can tell you this, it's worth the effort. If you have family and friends around you this season, slow down a bit and spend more time with them. And if you are by yourself this holiday season, I am so sorry. Please reach out to me. I'll, I'll celebrate with you. I know the holidays can be a very difficult time for so many, but it can also be one of the most joyous times of the year for others. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it? And, and, and it gets me thinking. And you know, I get a bit crazy when I start to think. <laughs> and I sometimes go off on tangents. But it makes me wonder, what's the difference? I, I know some people who are away from home, alone, in pain, homeless, even destitute and yet who are enjoying and loving this time of the year. And I know some people who are living in a huge mansion filled with family, friends, presence, and wealth, who are without hope and are miserable this time of the year. So it makes you wonder, what's the key difference here? Yeah, I, I kind of have an idea, and I'm sure you do too, but you know, I'm just going to stop there right now just to leave it open for contemplation. But please know that I'm thinking of you this holiday and hoping this season is the beginning of peace, love, and freedom from pain and symptoms for the years to come. God bless. Today we return to our normal format. We have our introduction, followed by our mailbag, benzo stories, feature, and close with our moment of peace. Our feature today is the pelvic problem, benzo symptoms of the lower abdomen. This is going to be a fun one. This has been a frequent topic of conversation and emails this past week. After I revealed my use of depends on the road trip, many of you have shared your stories with me of similar difficulties. And thus, like so many of the topics on this podcast, your feedback leads the way and it became today's feature. We'll talk about abdominal aches and pains, cramping and continence, frequent urination, difficulty with urination, digestive issues, inflammation, sexual dysfunction, and, and more, including a more and more frequent diagnosis for benzo patients, pelvic floor dysfunction. So I hope you'll stick around for our feature. And, of course, we still need feedback, as always. Questions, comments, stories, suggestions, corrections, additions, and, yes, your gratitudes for the holiday podcast episode. I'd still love to get more of those in for next week. Please keep them coming. Anyway, this is your podcast, and the more content I can share from you, the more benzo-free becomes a community it was designed to be. So please, tell us what you think. Visit our feedback form at benzofree.org feedback or email us at podcast at benzofree.org. 
or comment directly on the podcast blog itself for others to see. And don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org slash subscribe. And one last thing. The Benzofree podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. If you're listening to this podcast on one of our providers, please leave feedback on that carrier. This does help new listeners find us. Okay, then without delay, let's move on to our mailbag. In our mailbag today, we have two comments. The first one is from someone who wishes to remain anonymous, so I'll just refer to this person as my friend, as I often do on the podcast. My friend writes, I admire you reading so much during the withdrawal. That's one thing I couldn't do in the least. I couldn't follow concepts across passages. I've been feeling my way through recovery tools and understanding for years, beginning when I had interdose withdrawal symptoms. My friend, like several others I have spoken with in the past many months, is having difficulty reading and comprehending due to memory loss and cognitive dysfunction. Many of us know what that's like. Vision problems and light sensitivity can also add to this frustration. Yes, I was blessed. This was not a key symptom of mine. I am very thankful that I was not only able to read during my withdrawal, but that I actually rediscovered my love of reading during this time, and even wrote a book on what I had learned, and now host a podcast, in case you hadn't noticed that part. But this doesn't mean that I always remembered what I read. I rarely remembered what I read. This was, and still is, a hurdle of mine. My solution was I took notes, lots and lots of notes, both on paper and books and online. Now, that doesn't work so well with fiction, because you kind of lose the story, but it does work well with nonfiction in my mind. But again, that only works if you can make sense of what you are reading in the first place. And I know some of you can't. I wish I had a solution for this, except the standard, this too shall pass. In Benza withdrawal, that becomes our go-to message when we don't have something better to say. I hate to repeat phrases like, this is temporary or you will heal, or it just takes time. Not because I don't believe these statements are true. I do believe they are true. Otherwise, I wouldn't say them. But I hate having to say them so often because they seem so, what's the word, um, maybe insufficient, I guess. These symptoms do pass and we get better, but it also takes time. And for far too many of us, it takes much longer than we like. One solution for the reading issue might be books on tape for some. I use a variety of mediums when it comes to reading. First, I love a real book in my hand. <laughs> I almost never read a book on a screen. Honestly, it just gives me a headache. In fact, during withdrawal, I could only read articles on a screen for a limited amount of time each day. But even more so, I love books. The, the paper pages, the print, the look of the cover. I also love to mark them up, especially nonfiction books, which provide content for this podcast. I, I highlight in yellow and add notations in blue ink. It's, it's my process, and it, and it works for me. Then I put those books on the bookshelf behind my desk, and I have an old-school research library ready when I need it. But during withdrawal, and still almost every day-to-day, -day, I also listen to many books on my phone. And most of the time, I do this for free. 
I use an app called Libby, which links to my local library, and I get to check out audiobooks for free. Sometimes I have to wait a bit for a new book to be available, but I put it on hold and I'm told when it's ready. Anyway, I, I digress again. You should have said something. <laughs> Look, I realize that if you can't absorb the content reading on paper or screen, you may not be able to absorb it via audio either. And this is a big problem for many. And I know it has led to many difficulties, including loss of job for some. I, I wish I had a good answer for this one. The main thing for me was that I just didn't stop trying. I knew I had to exercise my brain, especially during Benza withdrawal. If books didn't work, and they didn't for a little while, I, I'd try a different medium to read, or I'd do puzzles or something that activated my brain and kept it thinking. We can't give up on this one. For me, I decided to educate myself the best way I could. I, I needed to learn about these drugs that were in my system. I needed to learn about tools to help me recover. I needed to learn so much so that I could not only survive but thrive once this was over. And guess what? I am thriving. I really am. This is a hard one, and I'm so sorry for those of you who suffer from it daily. Sometimes you do just have to rest and let your brain recover. But when you can, exercise that brain of yours in whatever manner you can still find that works. Thanks for the comment, and I hope your cognitive functioning returns soon. Our second comment today is a very difficult situation, but maybe more common than we'd like to think. The person who shared this comment also wants to remain anonymous, and since this person is sharing part of her story in her question, I thought it's best to change all the names in her email and even the locations. Thus, this email is from someone I'm going to call Madison. Also, this might be a trigger for some, so please be warned and skip this one if it's a concern of yours. Madison writes, Hello, D. I have been enjoying your very informative podcast. I'm now on episode 39 and I've been listening to them only for the past three weeks. I'm a caregiver for my son, Kurt. He took Clonopin for about 11 years. Then in 2016, he was switched to Valium, all prescribed by doctors. He has been tapering since August of 2016 and won't be done until I believe July of 2020. My son has become very angry and raged. We have had family problems that are not all resolved, and that's why he's so raged. The not letting go of the past is a huge problem. My daughter keeps telling him it's the meds, but he says it's because of what we did or didn't do to or for him. He and his sister now are at war, and because I am part of it, I usually take the brunt of it. I have told him that I have not called the police because I know it will complicate his life even more. He now wants to move back to South Carolina, where he grew up. We are now in Phoenix. I don't know what to do and how to guide him. Any hope for us? When he's done with the tapering, would the rage go away? I know you are very busy, but if you could reply to this, it would be great. If you want to mention some of it on your podcast, it's okay, as long as our names are not mentioned. 
Kurt does not want to listen to the podcast because he knows of the suffering out there and it triggers him. Thank you very much. Please keep doing the great work. Very much appreciated. Take care, Madison. P.S. Hope Bear is doing better. This is a hard one to deal with. First of all, yes, Bear is doing better, and thank you so much for asking. But as for the issue, I just have to say up front, as I often do, I am not professionally trained for these situations. Still, there are some things that maybe I can provide as information. The first thing I want to say is to make sure everyone is safe. Anytime violence or the possibility of violence is a factor, safety comes first. Even if that means calling the police. In my opinion, it's better to call the police to help prevent a violent outburst than to have the police call to handle the results of one. I am not suggesting calling the police in this scenario. I am not a mother, and I can't imagine the situation you are in. But please know that the police are trained to handle these situations, and sometimes it is the best choice. And there are alternatives, including state and local agencies, which can help with these situations. Perhaps look into those options, too. That may help prevent a visit from law enforcement. Situations such as these are very difficult, and my heart goes out to everyone involved. To Madison, who's trying to manage the situation without making it worse for her son. To Kurt, for trying to deal with his rage, which very well might be irrational and triggered, or at least amplified, by his medication and withdrawal. And for other members of the household, like his sister, who are trying to understand the situation, but just find themselves trapped in the middle of it. Before I had a chance to email Madison back, she wrote me again with a bit more info I'd like to share here real quick. She writes, Hi Dee, a little more information. I forgot to mention that Kurt was prescribed clonopin because of Addison's disease, and he was anxious about it. Another thing is that he is very good, gentle, has a great heart, and is a very considerate person. It's hard for him to be that person again because of not letting go of things in the past. Thanks again, Madison. I did write a long email back to Madison, and she responded. I suggested that professional help and therapy might be a first step, and she shared that Kurt has been in intense therapy for a few years now and that he and Madison just started seeing a therapist together. She is hopeful that this will help, and, and promised to keep me posted. And I hope and pray that will be the case. This is one of those topics we just don't talk about enough. Much like benzos and urinary complications or sexual dysfunction or even suicide, violence is a topic we shy away from far too often. Benzodependence and withdrawal can trigger feelings of irritability, anger, hatred, and even rage, which all can lead to violence. And these feelings need to be handled properly, hopefully by trained professionals if possible. I don't have the answers here, but I do think it's something we need to talk about more often. Don't be surprised if you see it as a feature topic in the near future. Madison, 
please write back when you have an update. And give Kurt and the rest of your family my best. Take care. And now let's move on to our Benzo story. Today's story is from Graham in the United Kingdom. Graham writes, In August 2017, my wife Dawn and I decided to move from our house after 25 years living there. We found the house that we wanted in a place that we wanted, 260 miles away. Our two children had already left home. I started getting wonky and dizzy heads at 0300 and during the mornings. I didn't feel stressed about the move, but what the heck? I was scared I had a tumor and that we would move and then I would die, leaving Dawn on her own in a strange town with no friends. I saw two consultants who both diagnosed migraine. I had a CT scan whilst on holiday in India after I had my first and worst panic attack. And it was clear. I had an MRI scan and it was clear. But the symptoms continued. When we arrived at our new house, I registered at the doctor and when she asked me if I had any health problems, I told her about the migraine diagnosis. She suggested propranolol, a beta blocker, as an inhibitor. I said yes. The biggest mistake I have made in my life. After a week of propranolol, I started to feel drained completely every day at about 1700. Then things took a turn for the worse. It's, it's hard to describe, but I started to get a weird feeling in my left leg. And after a few hours, my brain was telling me that I couldn't live feeling this way. Then I started to shake internally. And then I started to plan my suicide. All of this happened in two days. I got an urgent appointment with the doctor, and on the way there, I was picturing jumping into the traffic and wondering how painful it might be before I died. I immediately came off the propranolol and was put on diazepam, and I made an appointment to see a neurologist the next day. He put me on delexetine, an SSNRI for major depressive disorder, and said to taper the diazepam. I saw him a number of times over the next fortnight, and I told him that I had started waking up at about 05.30 each day with a panic attack. He prescribed clonazepam, clonopin, at 0.5 milligrams. He told me to take it 30 minutes before bed. It was a miracle drug. I never had another panic attack. He told me that it was a low dose and not to worry. He said that I could come off at 1 a.m. better. I had no idea that four weeks was the maximum recommended time on a benzo. In fact, at the time, I didn't even know what a benzo was. Four months later, I was still getting dizzy. But this was in a different way. And as it is one of the side effects of deluxetine and clonazepam, I decided it was time to taper off because... I was not feeling suicidal or anxious in the same way, and I was sleeping fine. Because I am who I am, I wrote my own taper plan, which started with a deluxetine, because I figured that I started it first, so I should stop it first. Wrong. My neurologist signed off my plan, of course. 
My taper lasted two months, and the day I took my last deluxetine was the day I started my 30-day clonazepam taper, again signed off by the neurologist. Simply, I went from daily in week one to every other day in week two to every third day in week three to every fourth day in week four and then stopped. Best practice suggests that was rather too quick. It may well have been, and I can't go back and find out, but it has had one massive benefit. I knew that I had stopped putting this poison into my system, and that consequently, I was on the road to recovery. The symptoms may have been worse, we'll never know. But I never had that crisis that so many people have, where they drop a small amount and get symptoms and so decide to updose. We both know that the rush of symptoms can come at any time for a myriad of reasons. And so their increase in symptoms could have been entirely coincidental. They then make crooked decisions about updosing. So my first three months of recovery weren't pleasant. I had many of the listed symptoms, of which the worst was a wonky head that made me feel unbalanced and outside of myself. Add in anxiety, restless leg syndrome, nighttime pulsing, and a few more. But then it got a whole lot worse between month four and seven. A whole lot worse. I felt as ill and as low as I've ever been in my 60 years. That's when I found Benzo Buddies and started to learn. Would I have made it through without Benzo Buddies? Hard to say definitively, but it massively helped me through the next four months. And then at month eight, out of nowhere, I could see something other than despair. It just happened. Even when I was symptomatic, which was still every day, there was something in my head that made the sum of the equation positive rather than negative. I can't explain it any better than that. Then I found your podcast, and it reaffirmed so much of what I had gone through. It was and is fantastic for my recovery. I am now at month 14, and I continue to improve. I still have days when my symptoms are worse, and I wonder when or if this will ever come to an end. But I have many more good days than before. So when it comes to people like yourself, D, it's hard to know what to say. You guys are the real unlucky ones, and I'm way luckier. But then, in the back of my mind, is the thought that it isn't over. And who knows what will happen next. I was invited to become a moderator of Benzo Buddies, but I disagreed with their vetting procedure, so it didn't happen. I would love to give something back if I can. The opportunity just hasn't made itself clear so far. After October, I will be back to my normal routine, and I am looking forward to catching up with your latest episodes. Your work for all of us is brave and inspirational. You should be so proud. Best wishes, Graham. Wow. Thank you, Graham. What a great story to share here. I, I am so sorry for what you went through, but so pleased to hear you are doing better. Graham and I have been chatting on email for a few months now, and I have really enjoyed our conversations. He is a great guy. I, I'm hopeful that I'll get a chance to meet Graham soon, perhaps here in the States and perhaps later in the UK. I'm looking forward to that. 
Graham's story is an excellent one to share. He definitely tapered much quicker than most experts recommend, like he said in his story. Whether that was a factor in his symptomology, we really don't know. But most do advise a much slower taper. I am so glad Graham found Benzo Buddies. Sometimes it's that connection to others that really makes all the difference. Thanks, Graham. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us today. And I hope you continue on the path of recovery. Now, let's move on to our feature. Our feature topic today is the pelvic problem, benzo symptoms of the lower abdomen. Most of us in the benzo community have heard the term benzo belly. This term usually is defined by a group of symptoms stemming from the digestive tract and can even include abdominal distension, which can make someone look like they are in the late stages of pregnancy, which was probably the inspiration for the name benzo belly. As part of our 14-part series on the symptoms of benzo withdrawal, I already featured benzo belly in a previous episode. If you want to check it out, it's episode number 11, titled Benzo Belly, Our Gut in Withdrawal. In that episode, we focus primarily on symptoms such as abdominal pain, distension, appetite change, constipation, diarrhea, inflammation, nausea, vomiting, weight change. In addition to touching on tenderness, abdominal aches and pains, groin pain, testicular pain, vaginal discomfort, sexual dysfunction, menstrual difficulties, journey difficulties, and a whole list of others. And it's the latter of this group of symptoms I'd like to focus on today those of the lower abdomen or our pelvic region. Now, I'm sure some of you may feel that these topics are a bit embarrassing to talk about, and I can see why you'd feel that way. In fact, here's your warning right up front. If this is embarrassing to hear, perhaps this may not be the feature topic you want to listen to. But fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on your slant, I don't feel that way. If I can share my incontinence issues at Disney World, then I can share just about anything with you. The truth is, I've never been a person with a high level of bashfulness. <laughs> I mean, I could walk on stage in front of a room of a thousand women and talk about male impotence buck naked. <laughs> and, and while I hope someone turned the heat up in the room before I did, I can't say I would be too terribly uncomfortable. And trust me, it's not that I think my body is anything grand. Trust me, it's not. It's an average 54-year-old male body, white as a Bora Bora beach, covered in freckles, and carrying about 20 pounds I like to lose after the holiday. <laughs> Look, I'm not especially proud of my body, but I'm also not ashamed by it. I just don't think it's anything to worry about. And that also means that I'm not afraid to talk about it, or about details about it, or about some things that might embarrass others. Now, for those of you who have this unpleasant visualization looping in your brain right now, I am truly sorry. Quick, picture two fashion models right off the magazine cover, men, women, whatever your choice, setting themselves poolside at a Miami beachside resort, covered in suntan oil, margaritas on the side table, soft reggae music in the background as the breeze ruffles the fringes of the umbrella. Better? Good. Now, what was I talking about again? Oh yeah, I was on some long, drawn-out tangent, way away from our original topic. What I'm trying to say is that I'm not afraid to talk about any topic on this podcast. That is, if we can tie it back to anxiety, insomnia, benzodependence, and withdrawal somewhere. So, don't be afraid to ask. 
I've received some very personal inquiries via email, and I'm just as honest with those as I am with every other topic on this podcast. You know, for some reason, I don't think I was in line when they handed out the bashful gene or the modesty gene or whatever you want to call it. So I am what I am. And that's going to lead me to some stories I want to share with you today. I'm going to start out with a few stories from the listeners, and then I'll share one of my own. And I'm hoping this might help connect those of you who are having similar difficulties. And before I share, I would just like to say to each of these people, thank you for sharing. I know these are not easy topics to talk about, and I really appreciate your bravery and sharing them with others so that they can learn and feel a little less alone in what they're struggling with. I'd first like to share one from Jenny in New England, back from April of this year. Jenny wrote, Concerning benzo belly, a big problem many of us face is yeast overgrowth that you may characterize as inflammation. But there is very strong correlation between seeing white or what is called geographic tongue, not necessarily thrush, and candida in the intestine. Discovering this was a game changer for me, but I unfortunately also had the pelvic floor and urinary issues that weren't as easily overcome. Just time. Nine long months, and I am slowly recovering after three and a half years on one milligram clonopin and as needed use of Ativan for 10 years prior. Thanks for sharing, Jenny. Now, Jenny talks about yeast overgrowth, which we have talked about in previous episodes of the podcast. Candida can colonize the gastrointestinal tract, and according to a study by Kumamoto published in Current Opinion in Microbiology, this colonization can delay healing, creating a vicious cycle of low-level inflammation and candida overgrowth. And as you may have noticed, Jenny had ongoing difficulty with pelvic floor and urinary issues, which is one of the main reasons I wanted to share her story with you today. This next one is from Nancy in the United Kingdom. Nancy wrote, My stomach issues seem to have really hit me at around five months. I'm six and a half months off the diazepam now. I had a stool test, which was fine. I had an ultrasound scanned in my lower abdomen to check my bladder. I've been needing to pee a lot. Checked on my ovaries and all around that area. Outside and inside, yuck, lol. All okay. Don't get the gut issue thing at all. Maybe anxiety is ramping it up. I'll need to listen to the episode on Benzo Belly again. One of the reasons I wanted to share Nancy's email with you today was because so many of us go through benzo withdrawal and have test after test after test, all showing that we're normal. This is very common, and I thought it was important to point that out. And the third one is from Mel. I asked about her experience with pelvic floor dysfunction and benzos, and she shared a lot with me. Here are a few excerpts from that email. Mel writes, Hey Dee, thanks for responding and sharing your pelvic pain story with me. I have a small bladder too and was diagnosed with interstitial cystitis when I was a child. I didn't know the word at the time. I only learned about pelvic floor dysfunction, PFD, years after my many surgeries. I guess being on Ativan helped those symptoms because I clearly remember taking Ativan for bladder flares and it helping. I was also put on Ativan suppositories after not being able to tolerate Valium suppositories. I would be zonked out and non-functional from using them, in addition to my nightly Ativan. I even discussed it with my psychiatrist and she didn't see it as a problem. I'm glad your PFD is better. 
I've also done physical therapy along with injections, and sometimes it made it worse. Three years ago, things acted up again, and I was convinced all the pain was a hernia. But now the pain is back, and I'm not sure what to think. I've had many surgeries, and I think all contributed to this pain. Withdrawing from benzos is probably making the pain worse. Those muscles are used to having a muscle relaxant and now are spasming with nothing to stop them. I have an appointment with a new pelvic pain doctor, but it's not for several months. I put a call in to my gastro doctor in hopes of getting some guidance. Yes, as you mentioned, more men are getting diagnosed with PFD. Both sexes have pelvic floor muscles, and both can go through stress where they are clenching those muscles. So it's great that they are getting more awareness with the current diagnosis. Now, to retrain those muscles, to stop contracting when they are not supposed to, that's the hard part. Best, Mel. Well, thanks, Mel. And again, that's a great one to share because Mel definitely has educated herself on pelvic floor dysfunction and benzos and has learned so much. I really appreciated her sharing that information with me. Now, I've had several other emails on this topic, but I think I should stop there and perhaps share my story. Yes, I know you probably saw that one coming. It's a bit personal, but I'm sure you're used to that from me by now. I'll try to keep it brief. During my withdrawal from clonazepam, in addition to my benzo belly issues of gastritis, acid reflux, appetite changes, distension, and a few others, I experienced some chronic groin pain and tenderness. My groin would ache nonstop, and my right testicle was very tender. It was enough that I thought I should get it checked out. At first, I was diagnosed with epididymitis, which is inflammation of the epididymis, a tube at the back of the testicle which stores and carries sperm. Now, common causes of this are bacterial infections and STDs, and it appeared that none of those were a factor here, and the doc said it should go away over time. It did ease some, especially the tenderness of the testicle, but the aching around the groin continued. And on top of that, I was having some urinary difficulties. I, <laughs> I never had those before. I had the frequent need to urinate and the difficulty to start a stream. And also severe ache and even pain when I needed to go, much more than I ever had before. And I had some sexual difficulties too such as a very strong ache and pain and even urge to use the bathroom right after intercourse. The only place I felt comfortable when this happened was sitting on the toilet with my pelvic area relaxed, but I rarely actually had to go to the bathroom. Thankfully, I did learn how to avoid it. You see, I, I still have that condition, but I have found ways to prevent it from happening 98% of the time. I learned that if I rest in a horizontal position, lying flat for at least... 15 minutes after intercourse, I don't get that problem, especially if I don't bend at the waist during that time and put pressure on my pelvic area and abdomen. So I just lay there. Yes, go ahead and say it. I had a condition which basically forced me to cuddle after sex. <laughs> and no, you can't give this to your husbands or boyfriends via a pill or shot. It's not available on the open market. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Anyway, I went back to the doc and was referred to a urologist, of course. The urologist diagnosed me with prostatitis, which is swelling and inflammation of the prostate gland. Standard treatment, antibiotics. Without thinking, as I mentioned a few times on this podcast, 
I took a full course of Cipro, which is an antibiotic in the class of fluoroquinolones. Now, I'm not going to dive into the dangers of fluoroquinolones during benzoyl use and withdrawal. I've spoken of this several times on the podcast. Suffice it to say, they are best avoided, especially during benzoyl withdrawal. And it's good to speak to your doctor if you have concerns. Anyway, I took the antibiotics and it had no effect. So I did what I always do. I did my research. And I came across several studies and articles about prostatitis. And some of these raised concern about the overdiagnosis of prostatitis. And that many times it is actually misdiagnosed pelvic floor dysfunction. A diagnosis far more common in women until recently. So I developed a theory about benzo withdrawal and pelvic floor dysfunction and shared it with my general practitioner. And she agreed that it was a definite possibility and sent me to physical therapy. Now this is where it gets really fun. And please don't let what I'm sharing here scare you away from physical therapy for this. But I do want to mention a few things. For you men out there, you know how much you enjoy your annual prostate exam, right? <laughs> well, imagine that, but they leave the finger in, you know, your backside for a lot longer. That's the only way to really work the muscles on men. And for you women, in case you think you get off easy, not so fast. While the physical therapist may not spend as much time getting to things from the backside, that's only because they have the front side to work from too. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. For women, let's just say, to put it delicately, you have anatomy which allows more access to the muscles in question than men do. Now, I know I'm playing this up as some terrible experience, but it's not that bad. I've spoken with other men and women who have had the treatment, and while it's uncomfortable and embarrassing for many, trust me, when it works, it's well worth it. Anyway, while this type of treatment has been found very successful for many, it wasn't effective for me at that time. I think I was too much in the middle of early acute withdrawal. I've noticed through my own experience and the experience of so many of you that some treatments just don't take with people in benzo withdrawal. We don't recover like we're supposed to. We don't respond as expected. We don't have the same reaction as the general public, especially during taper and acute withdrawal. Later on, in later stages of protracted, if that's the stage you get to, these procedures can be more effective. In fact, I'm seriously considering going back and trying again after talking with a fellow listener with a similar problem. She's in therapy now, and I'm, I'm waiting to see how it goes. The bad news for me is I still have many of these symptoms. The good news, I work around them, and I think there are treatments out there which may be of help. Okay, you can wake up now. My story is over. <laughs> now, let's take a look at our lower abdomens and figure out what's really going on there. As I mentioned in my story, I came up with a theory of what has happened. Now, as I've said several times, I'm not a medical professional, and this is just a layman's guess but I've run it by a few people and it seems like a definite possibility. The diagnosis I believe fit me and I think many others I've spoken to is a combination of pelvic floor dysfunction exacerbated by severe inflammation, nervous system damage, and chronic muscle tightness, all triggered by complications from benzodiazepine use and withdrawal. 
And that's my non-medical person medical description of what happened. <laughs> now, now let's look at a little bit of science. Here's a definition of pelvic floor dysfunction, or PFD, from an abstract in Science Direct. Quote, Pelvic floor dysfunction is a constellation covering all conditions impacting normal defecation, bowel storage, continence, or a cause of perennial pain. Childbirth, obesity, radiation, surgery, or trauma involving the pelvis can result in pelvic floor dysfunction. The true incidence is unknown, but it is common in both sexes. Many patients suffer from more than one disorder simultaneously. A multidisciplinary approach is necessary to correctly evaluate, diagnose, and manage patients. A proper investigation and definition of the patient's symptoms is necessary before treatment can be effective and significantly improve quality of life. Now, I think that was somewhat informative. But even though pelvic floor dysfunction often describes a host of conditions, it also may only be one piece of all the complications in our lower abdomen, causing discomfort. Now, I'm not going to get into the science too much today. For one, it gets very complicated when we start talking about the central nervous system, GABA-A receptors, CRF concentrations, hyperventilation syndrome, AMPA receptor migration, and on and on and on. And I attempted to cover this in detail in my book. Second, some of the information we have about how benzos affect our bodies has changed. We're learning more every day about the mechanisms of these drugs and their long-term effects. In fact, I'm probably going to have to update my book pretty soon. And third, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> sure, I researched and researched and read and read and tried to understand the best I can, but I have no formal medical training, so I'm trying to make the best sense of it that I can. If you want more of the full medical rundown, that would need to come from the medical experts, which, yes, I hope to have more of those on the podcast early next year. Suffice it to say, we know that benzo use and withdrawal can cause damage to our nervous system, which can hinder communication with the muscle groups located in that region. We know that many benzos are excellent muscle relaxants, and when they are removed, our muscles can experience contractions and chronic rigidity. We know that a primary symptom of benzo withdrawal is inflammation throughout the abdomen, commonly seen in benzo belly and pain. We know that anxiety and stress causes muscle tension in the average person, especially in the neck and shoulders and in the pelvic area. And for those of us in benzo withdrawal, whose anxiety and stress can be extreme, well, it just makes sense that those areas of our bodies are pretty locked up. When I put all that together in my undereducated but curious brain, it seems like pelvic floor dysfunction and other symptoms we experience in our lower abdomen and pelvic regions should not be a surprise. Now, I focus today mostly on abdominal pain, some urinary issues, little sexual dysfunction, and a few others. But that's just the tip of this iceberg. Other conditions like menstrual difficulties, constipation, bloating, loss of libido, erectile dysfunction, pain during intercourse, vaginal atrophy, are also common. And we can talk more about those in future episodes. And I put this out to the women listening. If you are willing to share, I'd appreciate your experiences with these symptoms. 
I can only speak from a male perspective, and I wouldn't presume to know what your experiences have been like. So please, let me know, and I'll include them in future episodes of this podcast. Now, as for what we can do about this, well, there are a few things. One is to reduce anxiety. Yes, that is my go-to answer for almost every problem in benzo withdrawal, but that is because I believe it to be that helpful. If stress and anxiety are making you locked up, tightening your muscles, and upsetting your digestive tract, then anything you can do to help reduce that will help your overall symptomology. Two is diet. So many of us have digestive issues, but often become intolerant to certain foods during this time. Try and eat as healthy as you can and see if you can find out your trigger foods and avoid them when you can. If you can help calm your digestive tract, you might help reduce inflammation in your abdomen, which can help relieve some pressure in the area. And three is medical support and or physical therapy. Check with your doctor to see if there might be a diagnosis for your condition. Perhaps it is something else, but even if it's not, it's great to eliminate those possibilities. And if it is something like pelvic floor dysfunction, perhaps some physical therapy might help. Most PT training revolves around retraining the muscles and teaching them to relax. It's not always easy, but this procedure has had a lot of success. In the long run, acceptance is a big help. Our stomach may be upset. You may have abdominal pain. You may have urinary difficulties. You may have all sorts of problems, but they are temporary. I know I still struggle with some of them, but I truly believe they are temporary. Mine are getting better. It's just a slow process. I really wanted to talk more on this topic today. There is so much to share and dive into here, but I just ran out of time. I think we may have to visit this one again soon and include more of your experiences in it. And that being said, that wraps up our feature. I hope you enjoyed our topic today, and please let me know what you thought. And before we get to our moment of peace, please bear with me for about 30 seconds for, yes, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org disclaimer. And that brings us to our closing, our moment of peace. It's just one minute, or today maybe two or three, but it's just an opportunity to quiet your mind a bit before you return to the chaos of the real world. The way this works is that I will give a brief introduction, perhaps a suggestion of something to focus on. Then I will play a soft bell which will indicate the start of the one minute. This will be followed by another soft bell which will indicate the end of the one minute. And that will be the end of the episode. Feel free to continue to meditate if you choose. If not, continue on with your day. Please remember that you should only do this if you are in a safe place where you can close your eyes 
relax and let the world pass by without you for a minute. Today we are going to do something different. It's meditator's choice. If you've been listening or meditating on your own for a while, you probably have a style that you truly enjoy. So choose the one you like. If you're new to meditating, I'll suggest two simple ones here. They are standard breathing meditation and listening meditation. In the standard breathing meditation, all we do is focus our mind on our breath. And as for listening meditation, all we do is listen to the sounds around us and just notice them without judgment. Every time we share a moment of peace, the choice of meditation style is always yours. Today we're just going to focus on that choice. And our background sound for this meditation is a sound from Missouri on my recent road trip. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get started. Close your eyes and relax. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly. Let's do that again. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second and let it out slowly along with all the stress of the day. One more time. Take a deep breath in. Hold it for a second. Then let the breath out slowly, relaxing our entire body. Now just breathe slowly and naturally. And focus on your breathing or on the sounds around you or any other style of meditation that you choose. If your mind wanders, gently bring it back to your point of focus. No judgment. Continue to do this for a couple minutes.
Our next episode is episode 50, and it will be released next Wednesday. Thank you again for joining me today, and please, let me know how we did. Keep calm, paper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.